0: you and we're ready for what you have for us this morning in Jesus name we pray and all of God's people said amen you may be seated this morning good morning grace (laughs) all right all right pause for just one second if you've ever heard me talk, I do not accept subpar levels of energy. Okay? The reason being, if you broke up, if you woke up with air in your lungs, you are more blessed than anyone out there. So when I say good morning, I need y'all to yell it back to me Good morning, Grace! Good morning. Now that's what God's people should sound like. <laughs> Come on. Uh, one thing I just absolutely love about uh, Grace. Is that it's truly family. I don't know about you, but even, even as I showed up to somewhere that isn't our quote unquote church, it's not our building, uh, I walked here and still felt like I was family. You know why? Because the church never was a building, it's always been us. Therefore, if we are here, then the church can be anywhere. Uh, and the number of smiling faces we've got this morning is beautiful. If you don't know me, my name is Feel. Everybody say hi, Feel. You can choose how you wanna spell that. I make up a different spelling every time that I talk, okay? I don't know where we're at, P-H-E-I-L, maybe? However you wanna do it, all right? However you wanna do it. I'm the pastor of young adults and students here at Grace. I love young people. Uh, I don't really summarize my job more than just loving God and loving young people, Uh, and it's a blessing to do, and I see many of my young faces in the room, and if, if if you're not one of them, you're still pretty. You're just not as pretty. Okay, all right, love you. Here's what I need you to do, I need you to turn to a neighbor, okay? I need you to grasp their hand like this. I have a left and a right hand, okay? No, 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 like this, interlock the fingers, interlock the fingers. I need you to look them dead in the eye and say thumb war, go! Thumb war, come on, one, two, three, four, I declare a thumb war. Some of y'all are taking too long. Some of y'all are going doubles, bold. All right, all right, all right. Stop the thumb wars. Here's what I need you to do now. If you won, I need you to turn to somebody and brag about your victory just now. Tell them, I took that W. Today, I woke up feeling dangerous. I'm feeling like a winner this morning. Now, if if you lost, (laughs) I need you to turn to a neighbor and say to somebody, I took a big fat L just now. I did not wake up feeling dangerous. All right. Why we do stuff like that? I don't know. Um, I should just make these up when I get up here because I just think church is so fun. I think we just, we come in so serious sometimes like, you know, we're worshiping the Lord of all creation and we're, we're like this. He saved my soul and I'm so excited about it. So I just got to get up here and loosen y'all up a little bit because life is just too good. God is too, yeah, you can clap for that. And God is just too good to not have some big old smiles on our faces. <sighs> All right. Where were we? Nowhere yet. We were nowhere. Uh, I think I'm, got to do an announcement quick. Okay, let's, can we throw that up there? Friday, July 9th. All right, Cool. See, I don't have a screen back there. We are having worship nights. We're kicking back off worship nights. Um, they're either going to be, I guess, monthly or quarterly. We're going to figure that out. But our first one, Friday, July 9th, uh, I think it starts at 7. Um, but if you like this, if this is your kind of atmosphere, worshiping God with God's people, yeah, be there. Friday, July 9th, all right? That's the only announcement. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to continue. What? Oh, I don't, I don't know. It's a church, right? Church, yeah, somebody that knows? Yeah, I see some nods. It's a church, y'all. We are the church, but you know what I'm saying. It's a grace. We are going to continue in our Knowing Jesus series, all right? So we're going to be at the end of John uh, chapter 8. If you've got your illuminated scripture journals, open them puppies up. If you don't, go ahead and pull up your phone, Google John 8, and it's going to be on that page, all right? Technology is helpful sometimes. Um, But before we get into this, I'm really excited because... This is kind of the synopsis of chapter 8, and I think Jesus has some really uh, important things to say as he closes out uh, this talk with the Pharisees that we've been studying through. But before we do that, I'm going to pray with us and for us that God would help us. He would illuminate something new to us so that when we leave today, we didn't just come to a church service again. We didn't just do worship, and we didn't just hear some dude talk about the Bible. We encountered God, and it changed our lives. So we're gonna ask God to do that now. And if you would, please pray with me. Jesus, I thank you that you are in this place this morning. I thank you that we're gonna read out of your word today and we're gonna be challenged to open our eyes to you. So I even in this moment would ask that you would for all of us open our eyes fresh to you in this very moment. You are here, you are present. Would we be aware of it, God? Would you illuminate something new to us through your word? We thank you for your word. They're the words of life. And we pray that we would leave today knowing you closer, more intimately, experiencing your love in a fresh way so that we would leave this Sunday and not live Monday through Saturday like Sunday doesn't matter. We would be changed leaving today knowing it's never been about church, it's never been about a day, about a service. There's always been a guy named Jesus who changed the world because he was the son of God. And that's what we're here to proclaim today. We're here to worship you today, Jesus. And we thank you for who you are to us. We love you when we pray all these things. And all God's people in the room, you already know where we're going with this. Someone say, Amen. Amen. Come on now. Come on now. Yeah? On the lawn, Mark, I see you not singing. I see you, Mark. You're a pastor. Just kidding, I love you, I love you. Uh, we did decide something, you know, we got people everywhere, we got a bunch of people in here, then people um, uh, out on the lawn further out. What we do know to be true is that if you're in the building, you love Jesus more. And then the, as the further you get away, you know, you know, you know. just kidding, the ones in the front need Jesus the most. <laughs> oh, come on, come on, we have to have everybody today. All right, let's read the Word of God, shall we? John chapter 8. Chapter 8, starting in verse 48, and we're going to go to the end of the chapter. It will be up on the screens for you. The Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Oh, boy. Jesus answered, I don't have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death the Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he'll never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing, but my father glorifies me of whom you say he is our God. But you haven't known him, I know him. If I were to say that I don't know him, I'd be a liar like you but I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Those words are important. So the Jews said to him, you're not 50 years old, bruh. Have you, how have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So let me give you some context to chapter eight. Many of you have been walking along in the study, some of you maybe haven't been, some of you maybe should have been but aren't, wherever you fall on the spectrum. Chapter eight, I was actually able to open it and now I'm able to close it, which is cool. So we uh, open chapter eight and we see this famous adulterous woman passage. Really well known, most of us have probably heard it, and we talked about in summary, how it's a physical representation of what Jesus came to do. We talked about how where people are quick to condemn because of our posture towards one another, Jesus is always so perfectly quick to extend mercy. And in the same way he physically stood in front of the woman that was about to get stoned for adultery, it's a foreshadowing of how on the cross he was gonna stand in front of your punishment. He was gonna stand in front of my punishment. And then he continues in John 8, and he goes to talk to the crowd and proclaim, and Keith talked about this, that he's the light of the world. And Keith made this awesome analogy in talking about how there's the spectrum of light and that there's pieces that we can see in the spectrum of light and then others that we can't, yet they still affect us. And he said God so often operates the same way. There's pieces of the kingdom of God, pieces of Jesus and who he is that we'll be able to physically see and experience here on earth, but how many other pieces of being the light of the world can we not physically see, yet it still affects us. It's still changing us. It's still impacting us. And we should be excited that one day we're going to know infinitely more about him than we do now. And then last week Ben talked and it just wasn't good at all. So I'll skip that piece. <laughs> I'm so sorry. No, Ben killed it. Ben killed it. And, and Ben talked about this idea of the truth will set you free. And, and I'm going to be honest, it was, it was a little bit of a triggering message, wasn't it? It's a message. Maybe the world doesn't like to hear uh, sensitive people don't like to hear whatever. But he talked about it in such a bold way, and I loved it, and he said, listen, if we're gonna buy into this lie that the truth can just be how you feel, we need to understand that there's only a singular truth, and if there's not one truth, if there's more than one truth, there can't be truth at all, and our feelings are untrustworthy, therefore truth based on our feelings is not truth. So there's no such thing as it's my truth. That means there is no truth. And that's even just philosophy outside of Bible. And he talked about that and he said this, man, I love this. He said the problem with that idea of truth is that it puts us in charge. And who's really bad at being in charge? Us. And we need to be people who that even in the hard things, even in the confusing things, we seek Jesus as the ultimate truth. And then after these like multiple levels of debates, We show up at this end of the chapter, where he's talking about this idea of Abraham and before Abraham was, I am, and and he's still in this debate with the Pharisees and he like finishes it, like he ends this encounter with a couple of massive controversial statements. But I think that we can dissect them and see what they mean for us today. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna pop verses 46, we're gonna back up a little bit to 49, back up on the screen, and that's where we're gonna come out of first. So verse 46, which is out of last week, says this. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is because you're not of God. Why do I go back and highlight that before we read the first part of this passage? Because Jesus just backhanded the Pharisees across the face. He's like, listen, if you're not of God, you can't hear him, brother. Imagine if you're in here at church, you know, you went to Grace Fellowship at Summer Grove this Sunday morning at 10, and you ate some food afterwards, and someone walked up to you, and was like, hey, the reason you don't hear God is because you're not of God. Would anybody, like, at a bare minimum, be bothered? <laughs> I would. I'd be perturbed. Like, what are you talk? Leave me alone. That's not nice. And that's what he just said to these religious people, these Pharisees, these people who thought that they were getting it right. And then he continues into our passage for today. The Jews answered him. Are we not right in saying that you're a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I don't have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. What can we sit on for a second in just these first two verses? He says these controversial things to them about things they think they understand. And then their instinct is to start saying, like, we've got to rationalize this. We have to reason this. We have to- there has to be a reason you're saying these things that we don't agree with. It sounds a little bit like the culture. We're going to get into that later. But they go right to, dude, you must have a demon. (laughs) Like nowadays we just say stuff like, bro, you tripping. Or like, no, you wild or whatever. They were like, you got a demon. But what are they doing here? What they're doing is they're hearing his claim and they're seeing what he's doing. But due to not understanding it because it's not what they expect or what they believe, they try to rationalize it. And their rationale in this instance was you must have a demon making these types of insane claims, like literally in John 10, a couple chapters later, they literally call him insane in the ESV, that word's in there. He's like, man, you're making insane claims. And he simply replies with this, I honor my father and you don't get it. I honor my father and you don't get it. But this makes me think of one of my favorite illustrations of how God tends to operate. It's a man lost at sea. You've probably heard this one before. Maybe, maybe you haven't, so I'll tell it again. It's a man lost at sea who believes that God will save him. He's he's drowning in the middle of the ocean. There is no land anywhere to be found. He's treading water, just trying to stay afloat. And he says, God's going to save me. I trust that. So a boat is just, you know, whatever, a fishing charter shows up and is like, my man, you look like you need help. And the Guy in the water says, no, God will save me, I'm good. And then he keeps treading water. And then a helicopter, man, like Navy SEALs show up and they drop the the ladder into the water and this dude's in a full getup and gets down. I'm like, man, come on, give me your hand, let's go. Like, you're drowning. He's like, no, God's gonna save me, thanks though. Keeps treading water then a, a cruise liner, a Disney cruise liner shows up and Mickey Mouse hops over the edge and is like, come get in the boat, man. Like, you gotta get in, you're about to die. And he's like, nah, Mickey. God will save me. Disney cruise ship goes away. My man drowns and dies. He gets up to heaven and he says, God, I believed you were gonna save me. And God says, bro, I sent two boats and a helicopter. (laughs) And I read this passage thought about this metaphor of how God tends to show up, and each of the conflict narratives in John, what I mean by that is each of these stories of Jesus getting into controversy with a Pharisee or a Jew or a, a Gentile, an unbeliever, every single time in the book of John, it gives us another perspective, listen, on what those who see Jesus are missing when they don't see him as Messiah, It gives us a perspective as to what they're missing when they don't see Jesus for who he really is. And like the man lost at sea, but unable to see God as his rescuer through the the ways God was trying to work, the Pharisees in this story cannot understand the man in front of them as the Messiah because he's not the Messiah they're willing to recognize. Let me say it one more time. The Pharisees here, similar to the man lost at sea, the reason they can't see Jesus as Messiah is because he's not the Messiah they're willing to recognize. So my first point is this, recognizing Jesus in our life requires open eyes and willing hearts. Requiring or recognizing Jesus in our lives, both from a holistic point and a day-to-day basis, requires open eyes and willing hearts. Let me give a quick context that should really, like, illuminate this to us, I think. The Pharisees are Jewish leaders. A lot of us know that. Meaning these people prayed. They knew the Bible. It had been called the Torah at the time. They, like, they not only went to church or the synagogue or whatever, they led that junk. All right? So they were in charge. And listen, here, this is huge. Being Jewish, they were the ones waiting for the Messiah. Nobody else was waiting for him. Like, unbelievers weren't waiting for Jesus to show up. They didn't believe any of that. The Jewish people were the ones waiting for Jesus to show up. Yet, these same religious Jewish people are the exact people because of a certain expectation when the Savior they had been waiting for finally showed up, they weren't able to see him because it wasn't what they were willing to recognize. Let me extend the question to my Christian brothers and sisters in the room. How often do we maybe not see God because it's not what we're willing to recognize about what we think about him? Or what, how we think he should operate. This idea of if God was good, then how does this happen? You don't decide goodness. We don't decide how things work. So when we ask questions like that, what we're actually saying is I'm not willing to recognize what God's doing because it doesn't meet my expectations of God. Now, let me apply this to us, because when we read about these Pharisees, we talk about Pharisees as brutally missing it. Like, they're the, like the villains of the New Testament. Yet, how much does what we're talking about now, like, directly apply to us? How often do we let our opinions and thoughts and whatever infiltrate what we think about God? Therefore, we just miss him because we're not willing to recognize what he's actually doing because it doesn't meet what we expect. And I think the reality is that so often God is right in front of us and we're just not looking. I think so often God is doing amazing things on a day-to-day basis, but it's just not what we would expect of God. So then we have a whole culture of people who don't think He's real, but it has nothing to do with whether or not He's real, it has everything to do with whether or not we're looking. Open eyes. Every single day, there's opportunities from God that I would argue we don't expect. Every single day, God's working in our lives that we won't see unless we look for them. So I wanna talk about these two ideas, open eyes and willing hearts. What does that mean, open eyes and willing hearts? And I wanna preface it with a verse, Deuteronomy 429. I believe I have a slide for it. Deuteronomy 429, but from there, you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him, you will find him, if you search for him, and with all your heart, in all your soul. I promise that we will find him if what? We seek, we look, our eyes are open to what he's doing, there's a promise that we'll find him. Therefore, with that understanding, if we see God and how we see God and whether or not we view him as present in our lives actually isn't on God, that part is on us. So anybody who comes to you or you yourself, because we all got our own doubts, we all got our own struggles with these types of things, but if we ever are like, man, I don't know what God's doing, the challenge from Deuteronomy 4.29 is that we're not looking hard enough. It's never been that God's not working, never been that God's not doing something because those who seek him shall find him when we seek with all of our hearts. So let's talk about these two ideas. First one is open eyes if it's requiring of us to have open eyes to recognize who God is and what he's doing the way that the Pharisees weren't I think there's two main things in the idea of open eyes we can think about today the first is that we have to be actively looking we have to be and this is the word seeking that's the first thing with open eyes what's it mean to have open eyes towards God you got to be seeking God you have to be looking for the things of God if if you come to grace on Sundays we're so glad you're here our goal is as Grace Fellowship Church Shrewsbury has never been for you to come fill a seat on a Sunday. And it will never be our goal because that does nothing for anybody. Our goal is that you would leave Sundays encouraged to seek God Monday through Saturday. Because when you seek God, you'll find him. We need to be actively looking. Ask yourself the question, do I wake up in the morning looking for what God's doing? Or do I wake up in the morning and wonder what's for breakfast? That's why I don't eat breakfast. (laughs) Just kidding. I think there's a second part to this idea of open eyes, and it's this. We have to know what to seek. This one is big. This one's really, really big. I think this idea of uh, uh, seeing God, seeking God, finding God, we have to know what to seek, and that comes from knowing his word. There's other ways too, right? You can can be around his people. You can be influenced and, and spoke to by his spirit, but I think the primary way, and I think that's correct to say, the primary way in which we can know what to seek and what God's gonna be doing is to know what his word says about him because nothing that the word says about God will ever be different about what he does on this earth. And unfortunately, I think the reason that denominations are all over the place and people have a million ideas about God is because when we read this in ways it's not intended to be like read, when we like uh, uh, exegete this in ways it's not meant to be broken down, that's how we get a whole bunch of people who believe a whole bunch of things about God when really there's only one God. There's only one way that God's gonna operate and it's the way that his word says. And not knowing what to seek is how you get people, and ourselves included at times, who believe certain things about God, look at God in certain ways, think God does certain things that his word never says that he does. And that's how you get a world so confused about God. We need to be actively seeking, but we also need to know what to seek, and it's by knowing his word. Think about it. Think about this from a challenging perspective. The Pharisees were the singular people who read the Torah, the Bible, all the time. They were the people who knew it the best. So what does that say to us? That says just because you read the word doesn't mean you're getting it the right way. Just because you read the word doesn't mean you're gonna be able to see necessarily what God's doing. It needs to be read the right way. That's why context and form and function are so huge in the Bible and who it was being written to and why it was being written. And what was the context of the writer and in the tone and all the above? Because that's going to change what we see about God because his word tells us who he is. The Pharisees knew the word. They had to memorize that it was part of Jewish culture. Yet when the Savior was right in front of him, they missed him. Why? Their study of the Bible was religiously led, not spiritually guided. I'm going to say that one more time. And somebody in the room that knows needs to say amen. Their study of the word was religiously led, not spiritually guided. We can't read the book just to read the book. We have to read the book knowing that there's a living God who wrote it and wants to really tell us what it says. Tons of people read the Bible that are going to hell. And, And I don't say that, you know, that's not happy to say out loud. It's the truth. It's the truth. So open eyes are this first piece because even though they read it, When the word came down into flesh right in front of them, they didn't see it. And the Bible says the word became flesh. Open eyes means constantly seeking, but also learning what to seek. The second piece out of this is a willing heart. A willing heart. Here's the beautiful thing about Jesus. Like, y'all, he knows we dumb. Okay? It does not surprise him when we act dumb. It doesn't surprise him when we do things that make no sense. It doesn't surprise him when we mess up over and over and over and over again. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Like it doesn't, like like hunters, golfers, sinners. Okay, Jesus knows that. So the Pharisees here, uh, like they weren't getting it, but Jesus, like I just love this. Even the people he was the harshest with, he's trying to help them get it. Like like we miss this sometimes. He didn't just throw the Pharisees to the side. That's why he has so many encounters with them. He wants them to get it. He's trying to help them get it. And they're just dumb sheep. (laughs) They're dumb sheep. But he knows that, so Jesus over and over and over again is so gracious, but the Pharisees here don't get it to the point where they're even attacking him, and while he continues to give them chance and chance and chance again to recognize him, it comes down to the fact that their hearts weren't willing. They had the word of life speaking truth directly to their face, and they weren't willing. They weren't willing to be people who don't listen, people who don't miss it, who see and recognize in Jesus, Jesus in our lives, we then, if we want that, we have to be willing to accept Jesus for who he says he is, not who we want him to be. If you don't wanna miss God in your your life, if you wanna have a willing heart that is open to his influence and what he's gonna do in the life-changing power of Jesus, you cannot be someone who goes to Jesus and asks him to be who you want him to be. You have to accept who he already says he is. And you have to have a willing heart to accept that. Otherwise, you're gonna miss him. Why? Because you're looking for your version of God. And guess what? When we make our own little mini versions of God, the world looks like the way it does now. Because we all got our own God. We make him to be who we want, how we want, when we want. And Jesus says later in this passage, bruh, I am. Not you are, not you will be, not you're going to do this, I am. That's Yahweh from God. That's the personal name of God. And he says, listen to me, it's not about what you want me to be. It's always been about who I already say I am. And then we also have to be people that decide who, like if if we're people who try to decide who God is, it makes him not God at all anymore. So when we put our own expectations on who God is, it's not, he's not God then. That's a different God, that's a made up God, that's a God that's gonna fail you time and time and time again. But the God we know who tells us who he is and he decides right from wrong and he is all truth, that's the God who says, I am, that's the God we serve. And that's good news. But we have to be willing then, willing hearts, willing to listen, this is hard, let down our opinions. Put them down. We have to let our experiences go, our thoughts about the matter, and we have to be willing to let Jesus show us who he really is. But when we hold on to our thoughts and expectations and opinions and, and, and we let that dictate how we expect God to be, we will miss him just like these religious people are. But this back and forth doesn't stop there. So we're seeing right off the bat that the Pharisees, they didn't have open eyes, man. They were, listening. they were missing what was right in front of them. How many of us are missing what's right in front of us? But they also didn't have willing hearts. They expected God to be this when God was this. And because they weren't willing to let this go, they never saw this. And he continues this back and forth. And he says this interesting line. He says, if you follow my word, you're never gonna die. Now we know He's talking about eternity, right? We know he's talking about the soul, the spiritual realm. Like, man, you trust Jesus and you're going to spend eternity with him. We know that. But they're like trying to just rationalize and make everything tangible and physical because everything's about me, me, me. And they're like, they're all triggered and offended. And they're like, bro, Abraham died. Like, my man's the patriarch. He is head papa. All right. He's like, he led our land, man. He's, He's daddy other than daddy God. All right. He's number two. And he's offended by this naturally. He's like, man, that's the, that's the man. And you're saying what? That you're, are you greater than him? And the next point we're gonna look at is what Jesus says to this. He says something really interesting. It comes out of verse 54. They said, are you greater than Abraham? And Jesus answered, this is, this is just massive. If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. Turn to your neighbor and say really uncomfortably, my glory is nothing. See, we don't like that stuff. You're like, no, I worked hard for this glory. I'm not saying that. I'm gonna talk about that. He said, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It's my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. There's another verse I wanna preface out of a different gospel that kind of aligns with this Matthew 23:12, and Jesus speaking again says this, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted." So Jesus, who regularly has harsh words for the way that the Pharisees hold themselves, the religious people, the people not getting it, aka insert us, when we aren't getting it, he regularly has harsh words. He kind of takes it to this whole new level of where he's like targeting his words, because then he says, "Listen, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. My Father has to glorify me. I found this really interesting Because like, if anyone could glorify themselves, wouldn't it be the son of God? (laughs) Like, can't you glorify yourself? If I were to ask you out of context, be like, can Jesus glorify himself? I think my instinct would be like, he's God, duh. Do what he wants. Yet here, out of his own mouth, talking to these people, he says, man, if I glorify myself, My glory is nothing. And I think what we can take from this in the application of like what he's saying and to who he's saying it to is this. Self-glorification is actually self-deprivation. Self-glorification is actually self-deprivation. Let me explain and I think that this might wake us up a little bit. Deprivation by definition is this, lack or denial of something considered to be a necessity. Deprivation lack or denial of something considered to be a necessity. And and this whole chapter, this whole gospel, man, like is Jesus trying to tell people again and again and again, there is one truth, one way to heaven, one way to God, one way to true life, one thing worth glorifying and you need it. He says it over and over and over and over again, you need it. There's no life outside of it, how about this? It's a necessity. What I have for you that the world doesn't have is a necessity. Therefore, by definition, to not have Jesus would be what? Deprivation, to be in lack of something necessary. And Jesus is saying to them here, like in contrast, if you glorify yourself then, instead of me, it's gonna get you nothing. Your glory, that glory, that type of living gets you nothing. In fact, that type of glory, self-glory, is going to be the same thing that will actually deprive you of what's necessary for you, what is a necessity to you. Listen, spending our life here on earth glorifying ourselves is simultaneously going to deprive us of the glory of God. Spending our lives, your life, waking up, and every minute is about you, and what are you gonna do today, and how are you gonna live, and how are you gonna feel happy, and the pleasures that you can find. Living that way, that type of self-glory, Jesus is saying here to the Pharisees, with himself as an example, says that type of living will actually deprive you from the glory of God. You will lack something necessary. Mm. Now, let me bring this home and make it very tangible. There's zero coincidence that the world is the way that it is, specifically America. Let me rock your world here for a second. There's cultural studies done across the world, and in communal-like type of talks, meaning community, uh, nations, etc., etc. they're primarily decided, the nations, that is, by two words, individualistic or collectivistic. I don't know if you've heard those things. Collectivistic effectively means that the culture as a whole values family. They value community. They put the family, they put others, they put community ahead of themselves. That will be a first priority. That's why you hear like over in Europe, like in the middle of the day, they take siestas and just go hang out with their fam at like one o'clock and we're all like, we wanna do that. No, we don't. Y'all just wanna make money. Sorry, just kidding. Anyways, get this, America is the only singular country that is holistically defined as individualistic. Not a single other country in the world on this scale fell as individualistic. They all valued others and community and family much higher than individual success. America is the sole country in the world because of our idea of independence and pursue your happy and all that jargon, that we are individualistic as a culture. We value the individual higher than we do the family. We value success in whatever areas as higher than building community, as putting others. We value self much more than we value others. Now, America, in the same breath, get this, the only singular individualistic, it's a hard word to say, thing like, like country in the world, the only one, is it surprising to us that America, the great America, is also top three in depression rates, anxiety disorders, substance abuse. In fact, we're top two or one in almost every major communal category like that. We're the top of every single list. Now, if Jesus is telling us that self-glorification, pursuit of self, everything being about you is actually gonna lead to self-deprivation, you're gonna really actually miss out on what you truly need. And then we look at these statistics, see America more than any other country glorifies self, and we also are the most miserable, is that coincidental? Or would it maybe be that if God made the entire world, we should start listening to what he says? Because when we don't, we get the opposite of what he promises us. Self-glorification so clearly leads to self-deprivation. Look at social media. We use it statistically more than any other country. Do you know that plays a direct role into this other statistics I just said? Why, what's social media other than loving you? Facebook, it's all about your opinion being more right than the person that posted above you and behind you. Mine is the most right, because I love me and what I think. Don't even get me started on Instagram and Snapchat. The entire app exists for you to post your face for everybody to see. What does that sound like? Glory of self. TikTok, the new wave, what's it all about? Going viral so people see me. So people think I'm funny, and I can get followers and be approved, and what does all of that sound like? Self-glorification. Did you know the young generation who was born into that technology is the loneliest generation of all time? Tell me, tell me with a worldly explanation Uh, uh, how a generation that is able to be more connected than ever before is the loneliest. Because God told us a long time ago when we pursue that with our life, when it's all about us and making us look good and we want people to see us, it's gonna give us the dead opposite. He says, man, when you glorify you, you're depriving you. When you glorify self, you're actually stealing the glory that God wants you to have, which is his I'll say it again, self-glorification is actually self-deprivation. Do we see it? I think that's making some connections here. I think that's triggering some stuff that they were like, holy moly, I got 570 likes on Instagram, but I still feel alone. It means it's not doing it for you because it doesn't matter. My opinion on Facebook, you ain't never convinced nobody anything on Facebook. And nobody loves your opinions as much as you. Maybe the best thing we could do is stop posting them. Self-glory will have you deprived while God's glory will have you alive. How do we know? Phil, how do we know? How do I know if I'm doing this right? How do I know if I'm, if I'm wrapped up in self-glory? Can I just admit something? We are a hot church, honest, open, transparent. Phil Cook can tend to love Phil Cook. I'm not even afraid to say that God's been working on it, okay? He really has. I don't love me as much as I used to in a healthy way. You know what I'm saying. You know what I'm saying, okay? But like that's a struggle for me, man, making things about me and and everything about me. And I gotta pray against that. Before I get on the stage, every time I ask God, I say, hey, can this not be about Phil? Can this be about you? Can you take all the glory? Anything I say that wasn't of you, make everybody forget it in like a delete button moment. But I struggle with this, but I think the question I've asked both myself and my young people in the room to know if we do this well, just ask yourself this question, who and what gets the most of your time? because just let's crunch some numbers quick. You could say, I just glorify God every moment of my life. You know, you ever met that person that every time you ask them how they're doing, they say, just pursuing the Lord. What does that mean? I'm asking like, what'd you do yesterday? How was your day? Okay, that's great that you're pursuing the Lord. That's wonderful, I wanna know about your life. Just pursuing the Lord though, man. What is, okay, how'd you do it? Tell me how you did it yesterday. How'd you pursue him yesterday? Anywho, the way we gotta ask this, man, is how much time do we give to us versus other people like think about it from the moment you wake up you start serving yourself you start filling your head with what you got to do today this is really unhealthy but a lot of us probably do it we wake right up grab our phones and see what happened since we went to sleep six hours ago we just got to be filled in we got to see who liked our post since we last went to sleep Y'all know we do it, and for my people who don't got social media, y'all know you check emails, first thing you do when you wake up. You're like this young generation, they just look at social media, man, you read 15 emails this morning before you even thought about reading your Bible. <sighs> <laughs> Ain't nobody said amen to that one, huh? <laughs> but it's a serious question, man, I think about how much time I spend, for, I commit so much time to me, before 8.30, I have just filled my head with what I need. And haven't thought, you know, like it's a 17-point checklist of what I want and what I need and what I'm going to do today. And I wonder how often, whether or not we know it, our life is just so wrapped up in self, even maybe in healthy ways, that it's depriving us of who God is and what he wants for us because we're pursuing the wrong glory. How much time do you spend pursuing yourself versus God, yourself versus others? And it goes back to then what do we do? Okay, well... Got me, Phil. I'm going to only do 12 emails tomorrow morning instead of 15. What do I do about it? Like, I get it. I'm selfish. Thanks. Me too. What do we do about it? Let's go back to Matthew 23. It says, those that exalt themselves will be what? Humbled. But those who humble themselves will be exalted. The answer is we humble ourselves. How do we do this better? Man, how do I pursue God so that I don't live a deprived life? We humble ourselves. I want to define humility this way. It's from C.S. Lewis. Because I think what we do with the idea of humility is we say, cool, I just have to hate me. I just have to loathe in the corner and think everybody else is great but not like myself. That's not humility. That's pride too. Why? Think about the person who struggles to talk to anybody. Their pity pity parties all day long. Everything's bad in your life. Who are you still focused on the most? It's still pride. Pride can be the loud person boasting about themselves. And pride can be the person hiding in the corner because they feel bad for themselves every five minutes. There's both pride. So this is how C.S. Lewis says that we should do this. He says this, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's not about, like, if you're good at something, man, go get it. You know, if you're killing it in the world, go kill it. You know, be an example to others. It's not about thinking less of you. It's about thinking of you less. So how do we do this, man? How do we pursue uh, glorification of God and not self-glorification? Because we ain't got time to be living deprived lives. We think of ourselves less. What it would look like for you to walk away today and realize you think about you way too much, and it causes most of your deprived problems (laughs) because we're lacking what we really need, what's really necessary. I think the first major step to seeking this the right way is to ask God to help us grow in humility. And that's what Jesus is trying to get across to both these Pharisees as well as us. But naturally then, it escalates because Jesus, hear me out, was a professional at triggering people. Okay? If we think this, like, is the trigger generation where everybody just gets mad about something, Jesus would be out here pulling strings for days. He wouldn't do it on social media. But he'd be out there, like, messing with people. All right? He was a pro at triggering people. So here's what he did. we got to skip to verse 58. I'm going to be on the screen. This is fresh after. They're like, well, wait a second. Abraham was the man. Like, who? you think you're better than him? And he says, no, nah, I don't glorify me. God does that. And it gets down to 58. And they're like, bro, you're not, you're not even 50. How have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, Yahweh, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. Am. Now, I believe that this is one of, if not the only place, and don't quote me on this, but I did a little bit of searching, where Jesus directly implies that he's God. Now, there's a lot of he's the way, the truth, and the life. He's the light of the world, the son of God. He claims that numerous, numerous times. I believe it may be the only singular place where Jesus, in this moment, in this tense debate, directly implies that he is God. And this is such a ridiculous, incredible, blasphemous claim that the very next verse, they pick up stones to kill the man. Imagine how shocking of a statement this must have been to these religious people who are waiting for God. We already talked about how they were missing him. And then this dude's like, you're not getting it, I am. Like I'm what you're looking for. I've always been what you're looking for. You've been pursuing self-glorification. Well, look at how you're living. you some deprived mugs. And here I am, I'm it. I've always been it. I always will be it. I am. He uses the word Yahweh, the personal name of God. And I love that this is escalating to almost a fight. Let's compare it to some of our debacles, shall we? Who in the room has ever been in some level of a fight where you at least wanted to pop someone in the nose? Who's willing to be honest? Nobody except for like my seven saved people, come on. (laughs) I think we've all been in debates, conversations, arguments, whatever. Well, here's the escalation, the natural escalation of a fight. Two people come with two beliefs. Two truths, if you will. This is my truth and this is your truth and they just don't go together. Well then what do you do? You begin the process of a cordial conversation. You begin to say, well, this is why I think this and this is why I think this. Well then you still disagree, so it goes into a debate. Now you're a little bit more heated. You're like, no, 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 no. You're not understanding. Let me say it again. (laughs) The problem here really is you're not listening. And that doesn't go well either, because they're like, I was listening, you're not listening to me. And then nobody's listening to anybody. It goes from a debate to some accusations. Maybe some insults. Well, like, you're just dumb. That's what I think. You can't hear me? That's because you're stupid. We whisper that one. Well, then what does it go to after that? It escalates, get a little more intense. Where does a fight end? When someone is so vulnerable at this point and their ego has been so hurt and offended that it's gonna to come to blows. It's gonna to come to some type of physical act of violence. Now, for the person who gets to the physical act of violence, what does that usually mean in the debate? No. <laughs> no. Whoever has won a debate and be like, now let me punch you in the face. <laughs> it means you lost. Cause you're so over it, you're so mad and they kind of got some good points and you don't know what to do about it. So you're like, well, (laughs) let's get this done. (laughs) What happened here? He says, I am, I am God, I am him. I'm the one you've always been looking for. And what did they do? They went ready to violence, why? They lost, they lost and they knew it. They said, we've tried to reason this every way possible, man. We're talking about Abraham. It goes all the way back to the beginning of chapter eight when they were like, well, Moses, bro. This was an eight, actually seven. Moses brought manna from the like, heaven. He- he- and he's like, I am the bread, bro. That bread isn't gonna save you. I am. He's just go, one after one saying like, yep, you think this, not right. Yeah, you think this, not right. Yeah, you think this, not right. And he finishes it off with 'They're like, man, Abraham, how could you even seen him? He's like, listen, cause I'm God. This matters a lot. And here's why because Jesus already won the argument. 2000 years later, Jesus won the argument. He drops the metaphorical mic, he directly declares his divinity, it trumps all of their arguments. Well man, Abraham did this and Abraham was here, We're his descendants, you're not even 50, how could you know these things? You must have a demon in you. And he says, I am, I have always been, and I will always be. And right there, the conversation stopped. The conversation end. They went to violence because they knew they had lost. He, Jesus here, listen, and apply it to your life. He's facing the doubters. He's facing the scrutiny. He's facing the hard questions. He's facing a culture that doesn't believe in him. They're not willing to recognize him for who he is. And he answers with the most absurd claim in the history of ever, I am God. So absurd that they end up killing him for it. But listen, so absurd that if it's true, it changes absolutely everything. So absurd of a claim that if it's true, nothing can be the same for us who believe it. Because God came down as a person and died for your sins so that you wouldn't have to suffer the punishment that was due to you. I don't know about you, at times I personally feel attacked about my faith by the world and its doubts and its opinions and its questions. Anybody else? But the same way that Jesus, who is God, is standing right in front of these people and he's still being questioned about if he is really who they say they are amidst these questions, the same thing we deal with, he says, before Abraham was, I am. Listen, before your doubts, I am. Before your questions, I am. Before your opinions, before all of your thoughts, before your heartaches, your troubles, your problems, your successes, your failure, before you ever even breathe the breath in your mother's womb, I am. I was always and I still will always be. It never mattered about the questions, it never mattered about the doubts, and I don't know about you, but as I read over this passage, it washed me with some freedom and relief of realizing it was never my burden to prove God because Jesus already won the argument. It was never our burden to defend a caged lion, because the lion can defend itself. Regardless of who says what to you, who doubts you, who mocks you, who says you're crazy for what you believe, who says you're dumb for going to church, Jesus already won the argument. The debate is done, it's settled, and it will be settled for all of eternity. And in the same way that they ended the debate with the Pharisees, a few short days later, he got up on a cross had nails put in his hands and feet, a crown of thorns, he was whipped 39 times, he was beaten to where you couldn't even recognize him anymore. He was hung up on that cross to die. The entire time he went through that, he was thinking about you. And then they buried him in a tomb thinking it was over. They thought they had won the argument. Well, guess what? Three days later, he rose back up from the grave. That tomb was empty and every question that anyone has ever had was answered that day. Every doubt that's ever been doubted was answered that day. Any trouble, pain, or struggle was ended that day. And now you know where he's at. He's up sitting to the right hand of the Father waiting for you because he made a way for you when there was no way. And for anyone who would believe with him will not perish but have eternal life. Jesus won the argument. And let me ask you this, if Jesus could sit in front of the Pharisees knowing full well who he was and he wasn't threatened by the doubts and questions, why should we be? Why should we let a world who's looking in, who has questions about things they know nothing of, let that affect us when our savior ended the argument 2,000 years ago for all of eternity? We don't have the burden, church, of defending what's already won. You do not have the burden of letting other people's doubt affect your faith when your faith has already been sealed forever. And I don't know about you, but I know for me, I read this and realized it was never my job anyways. Because the minute he said, before Abraham was, I am, we can fill in any doubt any problem, any struggle, any question and say before that he still was. He still is and he always will be. That's our savior. That's who we're here to talk about. That's who we're gonna get in that pool and baptize some people in the name of Jesus after this because he is and always will be. And I pray that you believe that this morning and we're gonna go into a time of worship where we are going to declare that we believe that. So listen to me, brothers and sisters, I'm not gonna tell you how to worship God, but I know that if I believe that the arguments won forever, I am not gonna be sitting in that seat. I'm gonna be doing backflips somewhere and I don't even know how to do backflips because God won it for us. Let's pray. God, you are so good I thank you that you truly won the argument. You, you ended the debate. Any questions we've ever had, uh, they're irrelevant now because you already answered them for us. You are the way, the truth, and the life. There is no one who comes to you, no one who comes to God except through you. I pray for the person in the room that's been having those doubts, having those questions. Would they just be relieved of the pressure, even right now in this moment via the power of the Holy Spirit, relieved that it was never their job to defend it to begin with. It was solely their job to believe. All they had to do was say, yes, because you said I am. And because you said I am, the pressure's off of us. And we just get to live in your freedom because for the, who the sun sets free is free indeed. We love you, and we are gonna spend time praising you for who you are, not only this morning, but for who you've always been and for who you always will be. We love you. And all God's people said, Amen. Stand up and let's worship God. Come on. How great the chasm that lay between us. How high the mountain